This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. If you are listening to this, you are almost certainly a voter this coming Tuesday, November 6th, or maybe you've already voted absentee because turnout is going to be a big factor in the outcome of this year's races for various offices up and down the ballot in the state of Michigan and throughout the United States of America. And what is the turnout likely to be when all the votes are counted after November 6th? It appears here in Michigan anyway, that this is going to be an all-time record non-presidential year turnout, meaning a year in which we're not running, uh, voting on president, we're voting on governor and all the state offices and so forth. Uh, the last year like this was 2014. And the reason why it looks like turnout is going to be up so high this year is because the returns of absentee ballots to various clerks at the local level, township, municipalities throughout the state, so far indicates a 50% plus increase in absentee ballot returns this year so far compared to four years ago. Now, unless the absentee percentage of the vote goes up dramatically this year from what it usually is, which is around maybe 28% of the vote total, uh, it probably means that turnout on November 6th altogether, absentee plus people who actually go out and vote on November 6th is going to be up over 50% from 2014. What does that mean? Well, in non-presidential years, we usually get turnouts around 3, 3.1 million, 3.2 million. And if we get a turnout that much bigger than that, we're talking over 4 million. Now, so far, uh, the prognosticators have estimated we may get a 4 million turnout this year. And if we do, that would be a record. If it's anything above this, it would be a stratospheric new record. And what does that mean? Who are these voters that are going to turn out this year in a non-presidential election who didn't turn out four years ago or eight years ago or four years before that? Uh, We don't really know. Supposedly, they're mainly Democrats or maybe there are independents who do not like President Trump. On the other hand, Republicans proportionately usually do better in non-presidential year turnouts than Democrats do. And if Republicans are energized and they get out and vote this time as well, uh, you know, it could be closer to a kind of blue ripple than a blue wave. We do not know. We'll find out on Tuesday when the votes are counted. One other thing about the election on Tuesday, this will probably be, again, the only time anybody listening to this program in their lifetimes, either up to this point or going into the future, will ever not be able to vote straight ticket. This year, there is no straight ticket voting in Michigan, but There is a proposal on the ballot that would allow straight ticket voting 
in the 2020 election going forward. And if that's the case, and we always had straight ticket voting from 1891, the year 1891, up until this year, that means this is the only election where you cannot vote straight ticket that you will ever face in your entire lives. And what's the factor going to be in the election results? What impact is that fact going to have, if any? There's going to be a lot of post-election analysis about that. You can bet on that. One last just thing I'll say. Um, in this past week, we've had very conflicting poll results. We had three polls last week, at the end of last week, uh, showing that the race for governor and U.S. Senate supposedly had tightened to only four to five points between Gretchen Whitmer, the Democrat for governor, and Bill Schuette, the Republican for governor. That was down from 12, 15 points a couple of weeks ago or a month or two ago. And in the U.S. Senate race, we had John James getting his deficit against incumbent Democrat Debbie Stabenow down from where it had been earlier in the campaign as high as 15 to 23 points behind down to seven points in one poll and six points in another. So it looked like the race was really tightening a week ago, but then at the beginning of this week, a Glenn Gariff group poll came out very reputable firm run out of uh, a firm that's in Chicago, but run by somebody from Michigan showing that no, the race had not tightened that Gretchen Whitmer still was ahead of Bill Schuette by about 12 points. And the Debbie Stabenow was ahead of John James by 15 points. Well, now I got to tell you those polls, all four of them, three with a very narrow margin between the candidates and one with a pretty wide margin between the candidates were all taken about exactly the same time. And that was about a week, 10 days ago. So somebody's wrong. And we're going to find out on November 6th who it was. I know the public is already very cynical about poll results. They think that pollsters have gotten it wrong. Supposedly, back in 2016, the pollsters nationally and here in Michigan got it wrong when they picked Hillary Clinton to win the election and Donald Trump won in what was considered a huge upset, although we can analyze whether the polls really were that far off or not two years ago. But as a result of that, I think there's a lot of cynicism out there about polling. And I must say the pollsters themselves are having more and more trouble getting accurate assessments of the electorate. Uh, they have to make far more calls today, uh, either automated or in person to get respondents to answer uh, their poll questions by phone. They have to make tens of thousands of calls just to get five or 600 valid responses that will give them an idea of what the electorate is really thinking. So there's, I think, going to have to be a reassessment, and there already is one among pollsters about how can we improve our polling technique what can we do to get accurate results? Two years ago, uh, there was also a controversy, and there still is, between cell phone calls 
and landline calls. And since a lot of millennials, which are younger voters, let's say 18 to 34 years old, use cell phones disproportionately, uh, are we capturing millennials inadequate numbers in these polls? A lot of pollsters say, you know, millennials really aren't necessarily that important in an election because their turnout level is low compared to older voters. But if millennials are actually going to turn out in higher numbers this year, and there's some indication that they are, then we've got to capture them. So we got to make sure we got an adequate percentage of millennials included. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is there are so many more polls taken today than there used to be. I mean, everybody goes back to uh, the election, let's say, of 1990, when John Engler came out of nowhere seemingly and nipped incumbent Democratic Governor Jim Blanchard by 17,000 votes on election night. Uh, and the final poll that year was taken 10 days out, and it showed Blanchard with a double-digit lead, and yet Engler won. Well, you know, we've had a lot more polls this year than we ever have had before, but the last one again will have been taken, let's say, 10 days, 12 days before the election. Is there going to be another one that comes out this weekend that will capture a last weekend surge by one side or the other? We don't know uh, unless it's reported this weekend or on Monday. So let's see what's in store for us. I'm going to be back in just a minute with a very interesting guest that you're probably not going to hear anywhere else. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with a special guest here, somebody that maybe a lot of people don't know about. I don't think she's going to be insulted if I say that because it's hard to get name ID up if you're the Libertarian Party nominee for attorney general. But we have Lisa Lane Joya on the other line. Lisa, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, our pleasure entirely. Uh, Lisa Lane Joya. Um, you are running for attorney general as a libertarian party candidate. Uh, the major party nominees are Dana Nessel for the Democrats and Tom Leonard for the Republicans. I think there's also an independent candidate running named Chris Gravelin, I think. Is that correct? There, there is, but if I can uh, rewind you a little bit back on, on that, Bill, the major party candidates are three because the Libertarian Party this year is also a major party, so I am one of the major party uh-huh. candidates. Touché. There is also an independent candidate. I'm really not sure how to pronounce his name, Chris Gravelin or Graveline. Yeah. There's also, I believe, U.S. Taxpayers um, candidate, uh, Gerald Van Sickle. Right, you're absolutely... So there are going to be five of us on right. the ballot. Five on the, on the one ballot. Right in the middle. Right. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the Libertarians did qualify for major party status this year. They actually had primaries for governor. And, uh, you know, yes, we did. That's right. Okay. Well, let me just ask you how did you come to run for attorney general and be nominated by the Libertarian Party? How did that happen? 
Well, I had run previously for office one time before in 2016 for U.S. Congress in the 10th District. That's the thumb. Um, this year, I decided not to. Unlike Republicans and Democrats, we do not get the big money. So we're running our campaigns while running our own lives and our own jobs. I think all of the attorney general candidates this year have quit their jobs to run their campaigns full time. I'm a small business owner. I'm still running my business full time just because I have to. So just with all the pressures, I decided not to run for any offices. But I did, of course, throughout the summer, continue my study. I'm a geek at heart to studying more libertarian philosophy, more economics, more solutions as what can be done to better our country through a libertarian perspective. My goal this summer was actually to solve the entire medical crisis and health care crisis that we have going on. Um, it, it was a pretty daunting task, but nonetheless, that was my interest this summer. I kept on going back, though, to my favorite libertarian philosopher, and I'm going to spell his name out for your listeners. It's B-A-S-T-I-A-T. His name is Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat, and the reason why I spelled that name out that for you is that if you ever see that on a license plate on an old beat-up car on a Michigan highway, that's me. <laughs> Deep and say hi. I'm so crazy about this guy. I couldn't decide whether to get a tattoo or a, a license plate of them. I decided to go with the, the, the lesser commitment. And if I'm really crazy about him after five years, I'll get his name tattooed on me. Bastiat, who was born in 1801, died in 1850. One of his most famous works is a treatise. And it's not a book, guys. You can read it in less than an hour. And I suggest everybody read it. And it's called, appropriately enough, The Law. And the first paragraph, he grabbed me from the first paragraph, and I'm going to quote a little bit from you, from that to you, if that's okay. Sure. The law, perverted. The law, and in its wake, all of the collective forces of the nation. The law, I say, not only diverted from its proper direction, but made to pursue one entirely contrary. The law become the tool of every kind of avarice instead of being its check. Truly, this is a serious fact, and one to which I feel bound to call the attention of my fellow citizens. End quote there. And after reading that again and again, because it's one of my favorite works, that one, a fact to which I feel bound to call the attention of my fellow citizens, made me think, Lisa, you can't just be sitting back in this election cycle. You've got to get out there. You've got to tell the people what you know. And what you know is what you see is that the system is broken, that by keeping on voting for Republicans and Democrats, you're voting for the lesser of two evils, and what you're getting is evil in the end. There is a way to fix the system. It's a libertarian way. It's common sense solutions that are based on principles, principles of don't hurt people and don't take their stuff and live and let live. So why not just become a regular politician? Well, you see, it. it's the same old, same old. Republicans and Democrats making the same old promises. And no one's looking out for us, the citizens, we the people. No one's protecting us. So if those politicians that we voted in really don't have our best interests in mind, and we know they don't, they have their interests or the interests of the special interests who paid to get them elected, then what's out there protecting us? And what it comes down to is the law. So in order to have that law truly really protect us, we're going to have to have someone in that office, the office of the attorney general, who is going to apply that log, law like a watchdog to make sure that our citizens are protected. Yeah, let, let, so let me just start- interject here. Now, as I understand it, you're not an attorney, and I think every attorney general we've ever had is an attorney, but the Constitution 
does not require an attorney to be elected to this job. Is that correct? Uh, the Constitution, nor I'm looking right now at the, the uh, Secretary of State requirements. I would have to be a registered and qualified elector of the state of Michigan on the date I was nominated, and I was, so I qualify. But not only is the Attorney General the chief attorney, he or she is also the chief law enforcement officer of the state. And I'd like to point out that none of the candidates have law enforcement backgrounds. Also, all of the candidates who are lawyers do have prosecutorial experience. But prosecution is not the only form of the law that the Office of the Attorney General is involved in. You're involved in so many different things. Um, charitable trusts, firearms laws, charitable trust asset sales, landlord tenants. A lot of that is contract law as well. And what the Attorney General, he or she, is not going to be in court. He or she is not going to be writing legal opinions. He or she is an administrator who's going to be overseeing the 250 assistant attorney generals in there and the 200 secretaries and investigators are in there. So what you need is an investigator there, an administrator who can set the direction for the attorneys and the investigators with the attitude and the objectives of standing up for individual liberties and to defy federal and state politicians' overreach and to protect the people, not to protect themselves. Lisa Joy, as I understand it, uh, there have been a couple of polls out that show you with surprising support. Uh, one of them, and I saw you had four or five percent. Another one, you had nine percent. Uh, you're you could be a big factor in this election. Um, to me, the, the the biggest factor that I could make would be if I, I again polls are numbers. They're numbers, and honestly, um, my background's in economics. They can be skewed either way in red anyway. And honestly, what, what also scares me when it comes down to polls, too, is as you see us approaching the election, you see these polls narrowing in most races. And I honestly think that they're doing that on purpose to build up fear. You have to vote for this party or you have to vote for that party or else it will be an apocalypse and a catastrophe if the other party gets in. I don't trust them. The only numbers I'm interested in, and, and not, of course, I would love to win. Of course, I would love to see a victory on November 7th. To me, the real numbers that are going to matter are going to be when we come back in, in January and we, the Libertarian Party, start preparing for our 2020 election season and to see how many people through me have learned about the Libertarian Party, about the principles of libertarianism, about the fact that you do have an alternative here, about the fact that there's a political party that's based on principles of protecting individual life, liberty, and property. Yeah, Lisa Joya, we've got to take a short break here. But we are going to be back with more from Lisa Joya, who is the Libertarian Party nominee for Attorney General of the State of Michigan, next Tuesday, November 6th. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. Lisa Lane Joya, the Libertarian Party candidate for attorney general this year um you are a graduate of the university of michigan is that correct and and if a so proud then, then what a proud wolverine yes i am proud okay what what did you do after that have you had a business background or what 
um, I graduated. My my majors were in economics and Japanese from U of M. And after my studies there, I went and I did a year of intensive study in Japanese in Japan. Um, at that time, Japan was still. It was this is going to explain how old I am. It was in 1991. Japan was still in a boom cycle. I found an amazing job that paid well. This job was a job in a law firm specializing in intellectual property law, which I knew nothing about when I went in there. I went in as a translator, had to become really familiar really quick with the intricacies of intellectual property laws of the U.S., Japan, Europe, as well as become knowledgeable about different types of engineering, mechanical engineering, electronic engineering, and electrical engineering. Stayed with the firm for 10 years. After that, just got sick of life in the big city, wanted to come back to my home, to my family here in Michigan. When I came back here, I decided to start my own firm, my own office, uh, specializing in translations. And my the law firm that I worked for for 10 years said, no way, baby, you're too good. And they bound me with a contract. So I have one single client, and I work exclusively for them doing translation of patent applications from Japanese into English. And that same law firm I've been working with for 27 years. Wow. Uh, let me ask you, if you're elected attorney general, what are the issues and the challenges that you would like to be able to tackle right off the bat? When it comes to issues, there are issues and challenges, and those are two different things. First of all, um, I'm sure we're short of time, can't go into all of them, but the major issues that I'm sure of are of interest to the public, proposal number one is on the ballot. That's a big one, the legalization of cannabis and hemp, which I am very in favor of. Um, it just has so many medical benefits that could be helping so many people. It's resulting in ridiculous incarceration rates. And so if elected, that would be the first and major thing. Let's get the laws changed so we're not prosecuting people for this and also free up everybody who's been incarcerated for a nonviolent marijuana-related crime and have their records expunged. Other important issues that definitely need to be tackled are civil asset forfeiture. This is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. This should not be happening. People are having their assets seized even though they're not convicted of a crime and the assets are not related to a crime. It's essentially theft by government under the guise of it being a police action. But it's theft, and that cannot stand. Occupational licensing needs to be reformed, and I think also one of the biggest topics on everybody's minds when you get those bills, your mind just blows twice a year. The auto insurance bill, that needs to be reformed. This is ridiculous. We need to switch back to, to a tort-based system as opposed to this no-fault system. Most states that have reverted back to a tort-based system have seen market decreases in the cost of insurance. When you talk about occupational licensure reform, what do you mean? Um, what Michigan requires, and this should make all of your, your listeners' jaw drops, if you just want to go and do something, in a lot of cases, you just can't go do it as a job. You need a license for it. These are examples. A cosmetologist, a real estate broker, a carpenter, painter, or an electrical journeyman. Now, what if you're a girl in, say, Detroit, you're really good at doing hair and nails and everything, and you want to open up your own salon. 
too bad for you. You have to go through months and months of training at school that's going to cost a lot. You're going to have to pass a test that's going to cost you a lot to take. You might have to get that license renewed each year. These are state requirements that the state has set up that effectively ban people from trying to work. If there are to be boards that certify you, fine. Have them be private boards. Have there be a an association of hairdressers that will certify you. But to have the state get involved in there, make laws that prevent people from who want to work and who have talents from trying to work, that's disgusting, and that's got to be stopped. Very good explanation. You, you've mentioned the issues that you'd want to uh, tackle, but you say there's a distinction between issues and challenges. What are the challenges you would face coming in as an challenges. attorney general? By issues, I meant concrete issues, things that you're going to wade into the weeds on. By challenges, I mean the culture of the office. And this, I'm hoping, of course, this is just one office in the government, but having, having come of age as a worker in Japan, you know, and it's ingrained in you, that the client is, you are there at the behest of the client, you are there to serve the client. The client's needs come first. Why isn't that applied to government as well? So if I got in there as the attorney general, everybody in that office would darn well know that everybody there had to be working to serve the public, that everything had to be done in a nonpartisan manner. No Republicans or Democrats. This is the law. If you're a Republican or Democrat, fine. I'm not going to fault you on it. But you don't use that in applying the law. You're applying the law on the basis of the Constitution and in defense of individual rights. And every decision that you make there better be made on the basis of well-researched facts, of statistics, of scientific data, and not opinions. So it's the priority of forming a culture where all of the workers know that we're there to serve the public. You've seen that that bumper sticker before. If not, I've got one. I can send it to you. Since when did our, our public servants become our masters? And that's what it is. It's time to switch it around. They're there to serve at the behest of us, of we the people. It's not the other way around. What have you done as a candidate? Have you tried to travel around the state and meet people? How do you get your name out? How do you interact with the news media? What have you been able to do in the campaign? I have been trying my best to get out there to do as many interviews as I have. I have not been able to attend as many forums as I've liked to. Um, there's been an illness in the family that has complicated stuff. There are so many places I wanted to go that I just had to cancel out at the last minute. I'm doing what I can with the budget I have. I know that um, the two major candidates, not from the major parties, I'm in the major party too, but the two leading candidates each have a million dollars in their war chests from the latest reports that I've heard. I have signed the waiver, so I will not go over $1,000. I think to date I've got $500. I am doing this as as I don't know of a protest, it, as a protest and as a statement, but that Money has no place in politics. It shouldn't, especially here in the law, especially here in the office of the attorney general. But it's more than just a statement. For me, it, it, it's personal because I would 
seriously feel an obligation if I were to take money from anyone. I don't even take money from my friends or relatives. That I would have an obligation to do something back for them in favor. And I refuse to be obligated to anyone. If I have an obligation, it will be to the citizens of Michigan if they hire me to do this job for them. And that's the only obligation I want. Have you had a chance for any debates or joint candidate appearances with Dana Nessel or Tom Leonard or the other candidates? They have. Every time there has been a debate scheduled, they have both the two major ones. And essentially, it's not going to get televised or it's not going to get a lot of media attention unless you have that Republican or Democrat in there. Their two camps have been bickering back and forth over the specifics of the debate. Um, Tom Leonard wants certain people in here. Dana doesn't want certain people in here. Dana wants certain people in here. Tom doesn't. And they have not been able to come to a, a satisfactory conclusion between the two camps. Um, if it comes down to it, maybe it's the fact that they're both scared of debating the libertarian who has superior ideas. That's the only reason I can come up with it. So uh, we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Lisa Lane Joya. And I say Joya, but it's spelled to make sure everybody uh, recognizes it on the ballot. G-I-O-I-A. Italian, right? Italian. Pure Italian. And if you'd like to buy a vowel, I've got a couple for you right there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Lisa Lane Joya. Thank you for having me. Libertarian candidate for Attorney General. Great guest. Thank you. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back and we got a special guest, uh, the publisher of Gongwa News Service, the longest running, oldest, and uh, they would certainly say the best political government uh, daily newsletter, subscription, however you want to describe it, in the state of Michigan, John Lindstrom, publisher of Gongwer. John Lindstrom, welcome to the Political Insider. Well, thank you, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great, and I just want to ask you a quick question. Sure. Uh, put on your guru hat here. I just want to ask you, after you've seen so many elections over so many years, what do you think is likely to happen here on Tuesday? Um, well, we absolutely know some people will win and some people will lose. Um <laughs> Uh, all of the tracking to this point, and, and, and that's what people are now looking at since you know, individual polls can vary so widely, but all of the tracking up to this point has shown in the governor's race, Gretchen Whitmer ahead, and in the U.S. Senate race, Debbie Sabino ahead. Um, that said, I, I would anticipate that both of them would win, but I, the, the real question comes down to what is the turnout going to be? Um, Bill Schuette, uh argues that he thinks he can pull off a, ra- a win uh, on the, in the governor's race on the level of what President Trump did last year or former Governor Englund did in 1990. In other words, a very sh- narrow win. Um, if he can, if he can do very well in places like Macomb County, hold his own in Oakland, um, and you know, he he could be right. He he will probably win uh, most of the counties that are rural counties, uh, counties up north, uh, the question there comes down to what will the margins be? And if the margins are narrower than they were, say, for Governor Snyder in 2014, 
and Gretchen Whitmer does win Oakland County, which is expected, and she does win Wayne County, and there's no significant drop in Wayne County turnout, and, and she does well enough in Macomb, then she should win the race. And that the same should hold true for uh, Senator Stabenow. One of the big questions we'll be watching is how does her opponent, Republican John James, do uh, compared to Mr. Schutte? Does he, does he match or even beat Mr. Schutte in terms of, of actual votes? Because there's, there's a lot of genuine enthusiasm for John James. And, if, and, and in that case, should he not win? Um, what does that mean for his future in the party? Uh, what does that mean for him running for another race? There's another Senate race in two years um, against Gary Peters. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that he could look at from, from that standpoint. What about the other two constitutional officers, Attorney General and Secretary of State? Well, Attorney General is the one that the Republicans have been putting the biggest effort in overall uh, and outside of governor, uh, in large part because they have been so worried um, of Democrats possibly sweeping most all the, other, uh, all the other races and winning at least one of the legislative houses. And they see that as an important race, much as the Democrats did in 1998 when Jennifer Granholm won the Attorney General's race. They see that as an important bulwark to um, to keep their hand in in some function of government at a high level, and to also give them a natural candidate for for a higher office. So that one's a real toss-up right now. Um, Dana Nessel, the Democratic candidate, was leading um, after the primaries. Uh, she is and conventions, and she has pretty much not lost any ground, um, but Tom Leonard, the House Speaker, who's a Republican opponent, has picked up quite a bit of ground. So, And they've been hammering very, very hard at, um, at Ms. Nessel for what they say is uh, her, her viewpoints being too extreme. And then, of course, came this controversy about how she managed her, her campaign. So that is a race where turnout will really, really matter. It's very, very hard to tell. Uh, in terms of the Secretary of State's office, I think most people, even 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 off-the-record Republicans, will acknowledge that they think Jocelyn Benson, the Democrat, will win that race. Um, and and should she do that, uh, then of course one of the one of the effects that we'll all see as political junkies is that uh, the order of how the parties are listed on the ballot will change because it's based on who the what party the Secretary of State is. Uh, so the Democrats would be listed first. What, so that's where I'm seeing those two. What about control of the state house of representatives and the state senate? The state senate, I think, the odds are that the Republicans will continue to hold that. They will likely lose seats. Uh, the Democrats can count a bit of a victory if they get into a position where, uh, for eight years now, um, Republicans have been able to do whatever they wanted without Democratic uh, uh, either interference or cooperation. Uh, which includes overriding vetoes and things like that. If the Democrats can get themselves to a position where they hold at least 13 states, well, at least 12, but at least 13, uh, then they, they block the, the Senate Republicans from having the ability to do immediate effect, uh, uh, override vetoes, such like that. And, and that will be important, if nothing else, to, to, from a standpoint of trying to rebuild. Do they have a chance of winning the Senate? Yeah, but it's a long shot, a real long shot. They have much better chances of winning the House. In fact, uh, the other day I was chatting with a, a top Republican strategist who said that he thought there was a chance the GOP could still hold on to the House. Um, I think that if, 
I, I think whoever wins the House, Republicans or Democrats, it will be a fairly narrow uh, margin in the, in the 57 to 53 seat uh, basis, unless you see such a massive wave of people show up and vote that, that it just flips the thing uh, sideways for the Democrats. Uh, I also have told several people that if, if turnout is up, but maybe not as much, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past us to see a, a split house uh, for the third time in, uh, in, in almost 60 years. Uh, that's, that's a long shot, but I wouldn't, I'm not putting a 55-55 split out of, the, uh, out of the realm of possibility. What about the state Supreme Court? Two seats up, the two incumbent justices are running for re-election out of the seven. What do you think is going to happen there? Well, that's one. That's actually been one of the more interesting races um, because of the situation involving Justice Elizabeth Clement, who was nominated by the Republicans, but many Republicans were unhappy about her, and she has essentially been abandoned by her party. Now, of course, voting for... Uh, Supreme Court is a non technically a nonpartisan position, but the major parties make nominations. Um, she has picked up a lot of endorsements, um, uh, even though the party, you know, the party won't put her on her mailers. The party doesn't talk about her, and, and robocalls. They have they did not give her any money, as opposed to Justice Curtis Wilder, who was also nominated by the Republicans. They gave him a hundred thousand dollars. They did not give the same to uh, Ms. Clement. And it's caused some uh, some confounding for for uh, Democratic people. An organization such as the, the Michigan Education Association has endorsed both the two Democratic nominated candidates, Megan Kavanaugh, who's the daughter of uh, of a former Supreme Court Justice Mike Kavanaugh, and Sam Bagensos. I, I never get his name right. Uh, and Miss Kavanaugh or, and Miss Clement. So we will see. How that all plays out in the end, I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised to see anything happen because, of course, even with that being interesting, there hasn't been a lot of advertising. Unlike some of the Supreme Court races we've seen in the past, there isn't a lot of public knowledge about it. And both Ms. Clement and Mr. Wilder have a big advantage. When people go there, they'll see that they are incumbent justices of the Supreme Court, which tends to be a big factor in in how a lot of voters choose those candidates we're running out of time unfortunately i just ask you very quickly what about 14 u.s house of representative seats uh, our congress persons uh what do you see happening there republicans going into the election nine republicans five democrats um i would not be surprised to see at least one seat flip to the democrats most likely the 11th district, which is being fought very, very hard uh, by uh, Haley Stevens, a Democrat, and uh, uh, Lena Epstein, the Republican, that is still going to be a hard one for Democrats to win because it's such an oddly drawn district. Um, the 8th district between uh, Representative Mike Bishop and Alyssa Slotkin, uh, that could also go Democratic. I think the odds are a little less likely. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be extremely interesting to watch. What about straight ticket voting? You think it's you going to be a big back? Uh, I'm, uh, the absence of no, I'm, uh, the absence of straight uh, absence ticket of, voting um, this year for the only could, time in history. That is, you know, that's one of those things. That you, we'll just have to see what the what the final results are. Will, will we see a lot of ticket splitting? Um, both parties have been working very hard to get people to to pay attention to. Um, Voting for everyone in their in their party, 
but not having the straight ticket option uh, could mean it could mean a whole bunch of things. It could mean that you see votes cast at the very top, people voting for governor, U.S. senator, uh, maybe AG and secretary of state, and then walking away, not not voting for the rest of the the, the slates. Um, it, you could see some real ticket splitting. You could see some real interesting results in various districts. The only way we will know is when we see the final the final vote totals. Well, John Lindstrom, publisher of Gong News Service, you did not disappoint. A fearless forecast from John Lindstrom. Thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you very much, Bill.